December 2017. Nadia Atwi's vehicle is discovered wedged into some bushes at a park near her home. Just want to tell her that I love her. Come back today. I would forget about what happened. But Nadia is never seen again. If I go back, I would react differently, but I didn't know. The next call, the case of Nadia Atwi, available now on the CBC Listen app and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Over the course of more than half a century, Canada welcomed close to 3,000 South Korean orphans to be adopted by Canadian families. But new information is emerging that those adoptions aren't all that the Canadian government or adoptive families thought they were. Reporter Priscilla Ki Sun Huang looked into this, along with the CBC's investigative unit. Here is her documentary, The Orphan Papers. It first aired in September. My name is Kelly Faustin, and I was adopted on November 22, 1978, to a family of five. My mother father, two older brothers, and myself. I grew up in White Rock. I was born as Yoon Soo Joon in Okchan, Cheong Cheong Bok Do, on December 23, 1974. Kelly Faustin sits on the rocky shores of White Rock, BC. Her waist-long black hair has streaks of silver near her forehead. She's reading a letter she wrote about herself and sent to a stranger across the Pacific. Kelly grew up here in White Rock, literally an ocean away from her birthplace. White Rock is beautiful. It's really close to uh, the States. And it's right by the water. Uh, We have our beautiful beaches. And I grew up, you know, going to the beach, you know, on weekends and things like that. It's a small town feel. Not a lot of Asians where I grew up um, at that time. Kelly's adoptive parents already had two sons, but they wanted a daughter. To ensure that, they decided to adopt internationally. I felt like one of the family. All my needs were taken care of. Happy childhood. Did camping, did trips to Disneyland, that sort of thing. (laughs) Just everything was Western. And I didn't know anything different because I couldn't remember anything about Korea. In fact, Kelly and her new parents knew almost nothing about her first four years. The paperwork she arrived with gave her very few clues about her life in South Korea. The wording was vague. Well, we think or they told us you were left at the doorsteps of a police station or a fire station. Mm. That was it. They said all the other records were burned. And it said very generalized things. Dark hair. Oh, really? (laughs) Um, It didn't give me history or about my birth parents or anything. It just, she was healthy, happy, inquisitive, creative. That was about it. There wasn't more. And I didn't really care to know more because I didn't want to be seen as something different. I knew I was adopted. I didn't really understand about being Korean. I knew I wasn't the same as my family. Um, I think once I hit about 12 to 16, I was really frustrated of not knowing who I was and wanting to find out. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think being adopted played a large role in my childhood. 
About an hour's drive from White Rock, Kim McKay grew up in Vancouver, B.C. Kim is solidly built and has tattoos up and down his arms. Most are symbols found in Korean culture. Kim arrived in Canada in 1975 when he was two years old, though his papers said he was three. So being in school, being with groups of people, my peers, I was doing everything. I was a little younger than I was. You know, I didn't have any Korean friends. Nobody looked like me. Yeah, it was difficult. It was difficult growing up. I had a tough childhood. Like Kelly, Kim had only patchy information about his past in Korea. I mean, I was told that I was left by my family. Yeah, I was abandoned on the street. I was, I, I was thinking I was in like a burlap sack. I remember having this image of me being very poor. They said that I had a healthy appetite. I'd like to sing to myself. Uh, I was a happy child. I was a little small for my age. Just, it was so vague. These paperwork that I have is just vague. And, but I held on to it for a long time. It was, everything, it was my whole life was written on those papers. The other thing that was part of his paperwork, a full page declaring him an orphan. Kelly Faustin waited until she was in her late 40s to search for her family in Korea. I realize that if I don't search now, I may never know what it feels like to have a blood relative. So Kelly reached out to the Korea Welfare Services, formerly the SWS, and asked for their help. This was the adoption agency that facilitated most adoptions to Canada. So, quite quickly, I was told that uh, they found my birth father. Which was amazing, but odd, because Kelly's official paperwork also said she was an orphan. But it did give her hope. If she had a living father, what about her birth mother? And that's where she hit a wall. So they gave me records that I already had. And I went, what? That's it? But she kept pushing for more specific paperwork. They responded back. And basically it was a Nope, we're so sorry. A lot was lost in records. So sorry, we can't find that information. So sorry, written documentation was not very good back then. Kelly couldn't contact her father directly due to strict privacy laws in South Korea. So she wrote him a letter. She hoped SWS would pass it along. In it, she told him about her life, her career, her art. I want to share with you that I've had a good life. I've been raised to be healthy, strong, and independent. I am educated and I enjoy my career working with elderly and those that are in need. In my leisure time, I am building my art practice and working with textiles and ceramics. I am stable in my life and happily married. She pleaded with him for information about her mother. I hope one day to find her and would mean the world to me if you give give me this piece of information about her, even just her name. I want to try and connect with her before she passes away. Kim had started his search for family much earlier, in the 1990s when he was in his 20s. He approached a social worker at the same adoption agency as Kelly's. At first, he had little success. I reached out to Min Young from the SWS, and we had conversed for about a year, a year and a half. Got her to look at addresses, look at my paperwork, and she helped me lots. And then it came to a point where I can't do any more for you. And I was like, well, thank you so much. You tried. I tried. 
Years passed. By his early 30s, Kim was married with two young daughters. And then seven years later, she emailed me and she had her, my sister and my mom in her office. And I was like, what? Kim's biological sister and mother, alive and wanting to connect with him. She sent a picture of me as a baby. And I was like, no, this isn't true. This couldn't be true. And um, I sent a DNA test from here. I needed to prove it to myself. And it came back 100%. It turns out Kim's mother and sister had been looking for him too and had reached out to the same social worker, Minyoung at SWS. It was amazing luck. I mean, I still get goosebumps when I think about it. Once the DNA test came back, it was like I looked at my wife and my two young children. I was like, we're going to Korea. But what Kim would discover there would call into question everything he thought he knew about himself. Prime Minister and UN delegates met at Panmunjom and signed an armistice, ending hostilities in Korea, which began June 25th, 1950. The end of the fighting in 1953 began the era of international adoptions from South Korea. After the war, South Korea sent its biracial children, fathered by foreign soldiers, to countries like the U.S. for adoption. Official records show the first South Korean adoptee arriving in Canada in 1968, though others may have come earlier. But the international adoptions never ended. The world wanted babies, and South Korea continued to provide them. To this day, it's estimated more than 200,000 South Korean children have been sent abroad. So who exactly were these children? It turns out that many of the so-called orphans sent abroad for adoption from South Korea were not actually parentless. Children were sent to orphanages either because of poverty or because of societal factors. Unwed mothers or divorced parents were pressured to give up their kids. But many children still had one or both living parents or other family members who could have cared for them. My name is Kyungeun Lee, and I am director of uh, Human Rights Beyond Borders. Lee wrote a book called The Global Orphan Adoption System, South Korea's Impact on Its Origin and Development. She says adoption agencies manufactured what she calls orphan papers for children in orphanages. They reported to the district office that they found a child abandoned. Whatever is the truth, they just reported they have found the child abandoned on the streets or in the doorstep. Then it is almost automatically and just uh, a rubber stamp to produce uh, orphan documents. What I'm hearing from you is that Korean children were, quote, unquote, legally orphaned. Yes. To be basically fast-tracked. Yes. To be sent abroad. Yes. Am I correct? Yes. The orphan papers, the orphan documents were uh, produced and issued by government authorities. But uh, I can find no evidence that each individual case was really assessed and investigated by those authorities to figure out that those children were really orphaned or not. I would say that the relevant authorities of South Korean government worked as 
a factory of mass production of orphan documents. We are uh, saying that the, this orphan making procedure was totally illegal. So regardless of whether the child had parents or not, papers were produced saying they were orphans. The orphan papers meant they could obtain a visa so they could be sent overseas for adoption. It also made the child more appealing to prospective parents. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of the Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at the Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, it does seem like you have quite a bit of documentation now that it's all laid out. Since she started researching her roots, Kelly has continued to push for more documents. Now she has an accordion folder full of papers, but much of it is indecipherable for her because she doesn't read or speak Korean. But I do. So Kelly comes to the CBC building in Toronto and she brings all her paperwork. The first document she shows me is her original paperwork from when she first arrived in Canada. I want to talk to you about the word, two words in Korean. Ki-a versus ko-a. Ki-a. It literally means abandoned child. In Korean, ko-a literally means an orphan in Korean. And there's a difference. There's a difference. What I noticed in your paperwork, several times you are called Kia, abandoned child. But I noticed a shift, and I want to show you this document. You've seen it before. It's dated June 9th, 1978. Mm. This is the first time that you are officially a koa orphan. An orphan on paper. And this is after the director of SWS this is fills the paperwork and makes me a paper orphan. You are legally orphaned on this state. This is what the adoption agencies did mm-hmm. in trust. The Korean government knew. Yeah. Orphan and abandon. They're different things. As a adoptee trying to learn about my origins, that's a big deal. People played God. They made the decisions for... I like to think it was in our best interest, but was it? Kelly shows me another document, one she's only recently obtained. The Korea Welfare Services had stonewalled her for months, telling her there were no additional records, and then suddenly sent her this. The document contains intimate details about her parents, including their age, occupation, education, and even a summary of how she came to be relinquished. Through this document, she's been able to piece together what she now thinks is her origin story. My mother 
was of a, a, a lower class system back then and she worked as a manufacturing seamstress company and my father had his own photography business and he was an only child, the only male in the family. My mother went in and had a photo taken and I guess she kept coming in and they fell in love. Long story short, she got pregnant and they wanted to get married or had to get married, I don't know. And uh, my grandmother on my father's side said, no, basically, you're my only son. You need to marry your class or up. You can't marry such a lowly person. Being unwed, Kelly's mother couldn't raise her daughter on her own. So she left her daughter in the care of the father and the child's grandmother. A year and a half later, the grandmother relented and said the couple could marry, but it was too late. Kelly's birth mother was nowhere to be found. Kelly was dropped off at SWS and was then placed with a foster family and eventually put up for international adoption. These documents give Kelly her first glimpse into her parents' background. She is especially interested in her mother's job as a seamstress. Growing up, I used to spend hours in my room drawing sketches of fashion. I would hand sew and hand stitch Barbie clothes and clothes for my dolls. I didn't even know how to do patterns or I wasn't taught sewing. You know, I was a teenager. Um, materials, fabrics are such a big part of, and I learned that I, I just had this draw to them, but I didn't understand why. So when I got that record in me, it was just, I was, I still am like, I can't believe that. That's a part of me. Wow, that is my mother. It's been almost two decades since Kim McKay made his first trip back to Korea to meet with his birth mother and sister. The social worker who had connected them facilitated that first meeting in Seoul. So Minyoung had kind of got us ready. We're in the small little room. I've got my wife and daughters with me. And she was like, your sister and mom are on the other side of that door. I was just like, oh my God, I just couldn't believe it. I mean, I'm 33 years old at this point, you know, thinking that I was alone in this world. And then um, they opened the door and this woman walks in. She's pretty much knocked my kids to the side and grabbed me. And she started screaming and crying. And uh, in Korea, I had no idea what she was saying, but we hugged. And that piece of me that was missing, I, I never had that connection of, of a birth mother to a child. So everybody was just crying, right? It was then that he discovered the real story behind his adoption. Kim's birth mother, Sa Dong Lim, doesn't speak English, but agrees to tell me her story in Korean. She's seated in a public park in Seoul when I call her. You can hear the cicadas crying in the background. Dong Lim is 70 years old now. She had her children young. Her marriage was an unhappy one. When they divorced, the father wanted to take both kids. So Tongnim ran away with them and hid. The family was in shambles. One day, when Tongnim's mother was taking care of the children, she only returned with Kim's older sister. Her son was gone. I 
Tongnim says at first she had absolutely no idea what had happened, but eventually she discovered that the two grandmothers decided to send both children away for international adoption. At the last minute, one grandmother had a change of heart and left only Kim behind. Neither of Kim's parents had any idea or any say in the matter. Tongnim was completely stunned, so shocked she says she didn't eat for weeks. And when Kim's father found out, Tongnim said he went to several adoption agencies to look for his son. None of them could give him straight answers. She says after that, her family avoided even saying a single syllable of Kim's name. It was like an unwritten law. It's been 20 years since she's reunited with Kim, but her heart still aches, even just thinking about her son. Had they just asked where the birth mother is, my mom didn't want to give me up or asked the right questions instead of just writing these lies on a piece of paper and just shuffling me out. I feel the most sad for my mom. What she went through was was unnecessary, right? An access to information request made by the CBC to the Library and Archives Canada reveals that at least one red flag was raised about adoptions from Korea. In 1974, British Columbia's Department of Human Resources called on the Canadian government to carry out a full-scale investigation into children being sent to the province for adoption. The call came after an adoption hearing was halted when it was learned the Korean child might have been kidnapped. That child, a girl, remained in Canada. Meanwhile, adoptions from South Korea continued in full force, with Canadians welcoming close to 3,000 children over seven decades. I want the Canadian government to investigate. Now Kelly Faustin is on a mission. She started a Canadian chapter of a Korean rights Facebook group demanding answers for adoptees. Um, I want them to figure out and look into the cases, all the paperwork with the adoptions. The Canadian government needs to look at, was there corruption? Look at all the financials. There was a lot of money that was exchanged. That has to be looked at. Canadian government thought they were getting orphans, so Canada needs to investigate with Korea. Kelly and Kim are still left wondering who benefited from sending them away. Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship Canada did not comment on the calls for a full-scale investigation in the past or on adoptees' current calls for an investigation. But it says it takes all precautions to follow international and Canadian laws for adoptions. Since finding his Korean family, Kim has officially had his orphan certificate reversed. He has a photo of that day at the courthouse in Seoul. His parents are sitting on a bench, deadly serious. It's the first time he got them in the same room together. He looks just like his dad. Now Kim's Korean name, Kim Jong-soo, is back in the family registry. It's funny because I was 
49 years old. I'm no longer an orphan. I actually belong to a family now. Yeah, it's special to me. I don't know. I think it'd be special to a lot of Korean adoptees if they had the same ability to get this done. Kelly is still trying to find her birth mother. She is still waiting and hoping for a reply to her letter to her biological father. I often wonder why I'm creative. Where do I get my personality and spirit from? Who are my elders? And what is the characteristics of our family? I have left my contact information below in hopes you will respond soon. Kelly Faustin. The Orphan Papers was reported by Priscilla Kee-Sun Huang. It was produced by Alison Cook with the CBC Audio Doc Unit. And thanks to Albert Lung with the CBC Investigative Unit. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.